Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Thanks for joining me today. I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2010 issue. First, Andrade and colleagues provide a detailed review of the literature on the association between SSRIs and abnormal bleeding. SSRIs are believed to increase the risk of abnormal gastrointestinal bleeding and decrease the risk of ischemic heart disease events by blocking the uptake of serotonin into platelets, which ultimately impairs the platelet hemostatic response. Since GI bleeding can be life-threatening, it's important to understand the mechanisms, the magnitude of the risk, and clinical management of bleeding associated with SSRIs. The researchers posit that the SSRI-induced increase in gastric acid secretion may explain the increased GI bleeding risk. They also explain that the protective effect that SSRIs have on ischemic heart disease may stem from their effects on platelet reactivity, endothelial reactivity, and inflammatory markers. Since there is a low absolute risk of GI bleeding from SSRIs, precautions are probably necessary only in patients at high risk such as those with antipeptic or liver disease, those undergoing surgery or dental procedures, and those who are also taking anticoagulant, antiplatelet, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The researchers suggest that these findings may also apply in part to non-selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like venlafaxin. Next, in a brain imaging study of patients with panic disorder and patients with somatoform disorders, researchers investigated whether the two disorders shared neural activity. Anxiety is closely associated with somatic symptoms in some psychiatric disorders. Neuroimaging has already shown that brain areas involved in stress, memory, and emotion are intricately involved in the symptomatology of anxiety disorders. The researchers, therefore, undertook to compare the neural activity, especially the regional cerebral blood flow, of patients with panic and undifferentiated somatoform disorders to determine similarities and advance the understandings of the pathophysiology of anxiety. Ten healthy controls... 16 non-medicated patients with panic disorder, and 16 non-medicated patients with undifferentiated somatoform disorder were scanned using single photon emission computed tomography, or SPECT. The scans from the three groups were then compared using statistical parametric mapping analysis. The two disorders were found to share hyperperfusion in the left superior temporal gyrus and hypoperfusion in the right parahippocampal gyrus. These findings indicate that the disorders may be more closely related than previously believed. Despite previous efforts to categorize depressive disorders into subtypes, the classification system now in place is still debated in the psychiatric community, mostly due to the heterogeneity of depression. 
Using the results of the Netherlands study of depression and anxiety, Lammers and colleagues turned to data-driven techniques to identify depressive subtypes within a large cohort of patients. The study included 818 patients with a DSM-IV diagnosis of current major depressive disorder or minor depression, 16 depressive symptoms from the Composite International Diagnostic Interview and the Inventory of Depressive Symptomatology were used as indicator variables to identify subtypes in a latent class analysis. Classes were then characterized using four variables, demographic, clinical psychiatric, psychosocial, and physical health indicators. From this analysis, three subtypes of depression were identified, severe melancholic, severe atypical, and moderate severity. Patients in both of the severe classes had more neuroticism, more disability, and less extroversion than those patients in the moderate class. The atypical class was characterized by higher rates of somatic symptoms and more metabolic syndrome, suggesting a metabolic component. In one of the largest studies to date, this study found that both depression severity and the nature of depressive symptoms were important differentiators between subtypes. 3.4% of the adult population fulfill the diagnostic criteria for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Despite the prevalence of ADHD in adults, few studies have followed the long-term treatment of ADHD in adults. In this study, researchers focused on the long-term treatment of ADHD with central stimulants in 133 adults and explored the clinical factors associated with treatment adherence in a natural setting. They also documented side effects and looked into reasons for discontinuation of stimulant therapy. While 80% of patients were successfully treated with stimulants at the 6th and 9-month follow-ups, 50% were still receiving treatment after 2 years or more. Treatment adherence at 2 years was predicted by the amount of response patients experienced over the first 6 to 9 months of treatment. The most commonly reported reasons for discontinuing were anxiety and depression. Only 15% of patients discontinued treatment because of lack of efficacy. Severe side effects and drug abuse were not found in the patient cohort. Although a statistically significant elevation in heart rate was found from baseline to the two-year mark, blood pressure remained stable throughout the study. In the next article, Berg and colleagues looked at the association of vitamin D deficiency and psychosis in immigrants and non-immigrants in Norway. Immigrants who have moved from sunnier climates to Norway often have higher rates of vitamin D deficiency, and immigrants as a general population also have a heightened risk of psychosis. Immigrants and Norwegians with psychotic disorder, as diagnosed by the DSM-IV, were compared with a reference sample of immigrants and Norwegians from the general population. Serum levels of vitamin D in all patients were measured using radioimmunoassay. An extremely high percentage, 80%, of immigrants with psychosis also had insufficient or deficient serum levels of vitamin D, 
and Norwegians with psychosis had lower levels of vitamin D than Norwegians in the general population. As expected, the immigrants had higher rates of vitamin D deficiency than the Norwegians. This study has clinical importance in showing the possible benefit of vitamin D therapy for patients with psychotic disorder, but more research is needed. Suicidal ideation is a medical emergency. The majority of individuals who display suicidal ideation suffer from major depressive disorder, and when they do, immediate treatment is needed. Thus far, little research is focused on potential pharmacologic interventions that could quickly address instances of suicidal ideation. Ketamine, a NMDA antagonist, has been reported to have rapid antidepressant effects. In this study, researchers investigated the use of a single dose of ketamine in patients with major depressive disorder. The patient's suicidality was then evaluated at 40, 80, 120, and 230 minutes after treatment, using the scale for suicide ideation and three other common depression scales. Within 40 minutes, suicide ideation had significantly decreased according to all four scales. The decreases remained significant throughout the four hours after treatment. Although this study was small and open-label in nature, it is a valuable contribution to the possible prevention of suicide ideation in patients with major depression. Further studies are needed to confirm these findings and to delve more deeply into potential acute pharmacologic treatment of suicidality. In the next article, Sermon and colleagues ask whether or not participants in clinical trials for adult ADHD are representative of adults with ADHD in the general population. Although treatment of ADHD in adulthood has been found safe and effective in clinical trials, eligibility criteria for these trials exclude a large portion of adults with ADHD, mostly because of comorbid mental health conditions, which are frequent among adults with ADHD. The researchers compared three groups of subjects, 146 adults with DSM-IV-diagnosed ADHD who participated in a clinical trial, a community sample of 124 adults with DSM-IV-diagnosed ADHD, and 123 controls who didn't have ADHD. Subjects were compared according to socioeconomic status, occupation, cognitive measures, lifetime psychopathology, and functioning. Results showed that a majority of the community sample with ADHD would not have met eligibility requirements for the clinical trial. Subjects in the community sample had higher rates of lifetime psychiatric comorbidity, lower functioning, and more menial occupations, compared with subjects in the clinical trial. This study suggests that the clinical trial findings may have limited validity for adults with ADHD in the general population, especially those with comorbid psychiatric conditions. Gathering data from over 100,000 individuals from 21 countries, a large multinational group of researchers looked at the 12-month prevalence of suicidal ideation plans and attempts. Their primary goal was to identify suicide risk factors and develop a risk index for suicide attempts. 
they specifically looked at the differences between prevalences and risk factors in developed and developing countries to create separate risk indices for these two groups. Using the results of the World Health Organization's World Mental Health Surveys, rates of 12-month suicide ideation plans and attempts were found to be very similar in developed and developing countries. Suicidal thoughts were found in about 2% of both populations, with suicidal plans and attempts around 0.6% and 0.3% respectively. Risk factors for suicidal behaviors in both populations were female gender, younger age, lower education and income, being unmarried, being unemployed, parent psychopathology, childhood adversity, and having DSM-4 mental disorders. These risk factors were used to create risk indices that can accurately predict 12-month suicide attempts in both developed and developing countries. Major depressive disorder is one of the 10 leading causes of worldwide disease burden, and it has complex patterns of remission and relapse. Despite the prevalence of depression, finding reliable predictors for remission and relapse has been difficult. In this study, personality disorders were investigated to see if their presence in patients with depression affected the course of depression illness. 303 patients with depression were examined and followed over the span of six years. In that time, 86% of patients remitted but those with comorbid personality disorders took a significantly longer time to remit. Among all patients who remitted, 70% relapsed, and patients with comorbid personality disorder, especially those with borderline and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders, had a significantly shorter time to relapse than patients without personality disorders. These findings show that personality disorders are a reliable predictor of slowed remission in patients with major depression and a predictor of shorter time to relapse in those who do remit. The researchers suggested that treatments for major depression should address associated personality psychopathology in addition to symptom relief. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, falls into two categories. Type 1 usually stems from a single traumatic event like a robbery or natural disaster, while type 2 is a result of repeated interpersonal trauma, such as physical or sexual abuse. When PTSD is further complicated by other features, such as enduring anger, impulsivity, and self-harm, it is then called complex PTSD. The neurobiology of classic PTSD reflects smaller hippocampus, amygdala, and anterior cingulate cortex volumes. In this study, patients with child abuse-related complex PTSD, a particularly severe form of PTSD, were scanned to see if gray matter volumes in these areas were lower than normal. Voxel-based morphometry was used to measure the concentrations of gray matter in 31 patients with child abuse-related complex PTSD. As predicted, 
Patients with this form of PTSD showed reductions in gray matter concentration in the right hippocampus and right dorsal anterior cingulate cortex compared with controls. Additionally, reduced gray matter concentration was found in the right orbital frontal cortex. The reductions in anterior cingulate cortex matter were correlated with the severity of the child abuse and PTSD hyperarousal. Anger was negatively correlated with hippocampus and orbitofrontal cortex volume, and impulsivity correlated negatively with hippocampus volume. In the next study, Blanco and colleagues looked at the prevalence, sociodemographic and clinical characteristics, and course of chronic major depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder, which are two major categories of chronic unipolar depression. Chronic MDD and dysthymic disorder share many symptoms, but dysthymic disorder is associated with depressed mood and other symptoms that are below the threshold for MDD. Using data from over 40,000 participants in the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, DSM-4 diagnoses of psychiatric disorders were made. 1.5% had 12-month chronic MDD, and 3.1% had lifetime chronic MDD. Dysthymic disorder was less prevalent, with a 0.5% 12-month rate and a 0.9% lifetime rate. Individuals with the two conditions shared most sociodemographic factors, like female gender, lower education, and lower income levels, and risk factors, including a family history of depression. With regard to comorbidity, participants with chronic MDD and dysthymic disorder had significantly greater odds of almost all AXIS-1 and AXIS-2 disorders compared to the general population. An almost identical pattern of comorbidity was found in the two disorders. The National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions is the largest nationally representative survey to date, and it is the first to include detailed information on chronic MDD and dysthymic disorder. As such, it illuminates important similarities between the disorders. Disruptions in continuity of care and treatment access have negative effects on the course of disease in seriously ill psychiatric patients and potentially precipitate adverse clinical and life events. Unfortunately, this was found to be true among patients whose medication access was compromised due to changes in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Starting in 2006, individuals who were eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid were randomly assigned to a private Part D plan, which included new formulary restrictions and utilization management procedures. For many patients, this meant having to switch medications, even if they had achieved and were maintaining remission on their current medication. This study investigated the suicidal ideation and behavior among patients experiencing medication access problems due to the Medicare changes. Among the 908 dual-eligible psychiatric patients on Medicare in the study's national sample, patients who experienced medication switches, discontinuations, and other access problems were three times more likely to have suicidal ideation or behavior than patients with no access problems. 
the odds of suicidal ideation and behavior were highest among patients who were clinically stable on their current medications but were required to switch. Clinicians must be aware of the increased risk of suicide for patients whose medication regimen must be changed for administrative reasons. These findings suggest that this vulnerable, dual-eligibility population needs special protection. The Longitudinal Assessment of Manic Symptoms Study examines the differences in psychiatric symptoms, diagnoses, demographics, functioning, and medication in children with elevated symptoms of mania compared to youth without elevated symptoms of mania. The next article in this month's journal details the baseline characteristics of the patients that will be followed longitudinally in the study. All 707 participants were new outpatients, 6 to 12 years old, who had come to one of 10 university-affiliated mental health centers for treatment. 621 patients had elevated symptoms or mania, and only 86 did not. Those with elevated symptoms of mania were more likely to have mood disorders, bipolar spectrum disorders, and disruptive behavior disorders. They also had more severe manic, depressive, attention deficit hyperactivity, disruptive behavioral and anxiety symptoms, and experienced poorer functioning. Still, 75% of children with elevated symptoms of mania did not meet criteria for bipolar spectrum disorder. This finding points to the next question. Which factors make a child's symptoms more likely to evolve from elevated symptoms of mania to those that constitute bipolar disorder? Longitudinal assessment is needed. In the next article, researchers ask whether hormone therapy in elderly, postmenopausal women lowers the risks of depression. They also looked at the impact of hormone therapy discontinuation on depressive symptoms. While previous studies have shown a beneficial effect on depression for transdermal estrogen therapy in women going through the menopausal transition, the benefits for postmenopausal women have been much weaker. Also, a wide range of hormone therapies, especially those containing progesterone that can decrease estrogen's depression effect, have not been studied in this population. For this study, over 4,000 postmenopausal community-dwelling women over the age of 65 were evaluated for depressive symptoms at baseline and as part of a two- and four-year follow-up. Of the sample, 15% of women currently used hormone therapy and 20% reported past use. Adjusting for sociodemographic variables, physical health, and cognitive impairment, no significant association was found between hormone therapy use and depression at baseline. On further analysis, increased risk of depression was found in women undergoing transdermal estradiol treatment combined with synthetic progestin. Women who took hormone therapy continuously over the four years did not show an increased risk of depression. But women who stopped treatment shortly after beginning the study had an increased depression risk. Overall, hormone therapy showed no protective effect against the emergence of depression in postmenopausal women. 
Rates of smoking in adults with ADHD are high, and nicotine seems to have an ameliorative effect on ADHD symptoms. Therefore, it makes sense that treating ADHD might make it easier for smokers with ADHD to quit smoking. This next article focused on that idea, studying over 200 adults with ADHD who wanted to quit smoking. Participants were randomly assigned to receive OROS methylphenidate treatment, or placebo, and all participants received weekly individual smoking cessation sessions and nicotine patches throughout the 11-week study. Prolonged quit rates did not differ significantly between the medicated and placebo groups, with rates around 43% in both. The medicated group did experience, as expected, a decrease in ADHD symptoms and a reduction in cigarettes per day during the one-month follow-up. OROS methylphenidate was generally well-tolerated and safe as a treatment for ADHD in smokers and did not increase smoking rates as some human laboratory findings had previously suggested. In the last article in December's journal, Drs. Leboyer and Kupfer reviewed the evidence offering a modern view of bipolar disorder, that which defines it as a chronic and progressive multi-system disorder and takes into account characteristics of each patient instead of focusing on alleviation of acute symptoms and prevention of recurrence. They sought to find supporting evidence that various symptom domains that are dysfunctional between episodes should be considered as core parts of this disorder. Although current guidelines provide basically the same treatment algorithms for all patients and ignore the clinical, pathophysiological, and lifetime differences in the bipolar disorder of different patients, modern research supports the fact that assessment of symptoms and issues between episodes, as well as comorbid conditions and risk factors, must be considered in order to provide personalized psychotropic medical and psychosocial interventions for each patient. Medical evidence and health economic data both suggest that we must move towards a more modern view of bipolar disorder as a chronic, progressive, and multi-system disorder that requires more personalized, patient-centered assessment, treatment, and education. Thanks for listening to this month's podcast. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to participate in continuing medical education activities and to read articles online ahead of our print publication. This is John Shelton saying goodbye. I hope you'll join me next month for another publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.